I want to encourage you to turn once again to the book of Haggai in the Old Testament. If you'll find the very end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, and go back three books. It's the third book from the end of the Old Testament. Little book of Haggai, only two chapters long. And a couple of weeks ago, we began a study in the book of Haggai. And this is our second study. I'm going to review with you what we did a couple weeks ago in case you don't remember or you weren't here. And then we're going to plow into tonight's study. The title of this evening's message is When Revival Comes. And we're going to focus on verses 12 to 15 in Haggai chapter 1. And so if you have found your Bibles, found that place in your scripture, uh, you can follow along and you can just keep that open as we study tonight. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is a book, as we studied last time, that I believe lifts the hood on the study of revival. Now, the word revival doesn't um, occur very often in the Bible, but it is a biblical concept. And well known in church history, but we also see examples of it in Scripture. And this story that Haggai shares is an example of revival in the Bible, in this case in the Old Testament. So just by way of review, let me remind you where we are. The, the earliest parts of the birth of the people of Israel began with Abraham. And his descendants ultimately landed in Egypt, where they were enslaved, and then they were set free, brought out, had an opportunity to go into the promised land, failed to trust God, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then that next generation entered the promised land and took it. But they were not faithful to the Lord. They battled with idolatry throughout their history. They had kings, something else that God didn't initially want them to have, but they had Saul and then David and then Solomon and then a whole succession of kings after the nation actually split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and an older kingdom. And the thing that plagued these kingdoms again and again was a retreat from the worship of the one true God and falling back into idolatry. And as a consequence of that, we come to a moment in which the northern kingdom was overrun and carried away into captivity and then Jewish disobedience led to the exile of the southern kingdom, all the key leaders. And the temple was destroyed, the temple built by Solomon in 586 B.C. And so all the key leadership are in exile. And you read about people like Esther 
in exile. You read about people like Daniel in exile. You read about people like Ezekiel in exile. But then they came back. And in 538 B.C., Cyrus released them to come back home. And Zerubbabel, this man that's mentioned here, Joshua, the high priest, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah are part of a group of 50,000 people that returned to Jerusalem. Now, you've got to understand, Jerusalem is in ruins. There is no temple. There are no walls. And, and so one of their first assignments was to rebuild the temple of God. And so they laid the foundation for the temple in 536 B.C. And then over the next couple years, they laid this foundation and they began the project. But when they began to be harassed by the locals, Samaritans and others, they stopped the building. And, and all of these wonderful things that God had done in bringing them back to Jerusalem stopped. And for 16 years, the temple of God continued to lay in ruins. And the people focused on rebuilding their personal lives. So nothing happened for 16 years until August 29th, 520 B.C. And if you've got your Bibles open in uh, Haggai chapter 1, it says in the very first verse, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai. That dates exactly when his first sermon was preached. And because we know about Darius, we know that that was August 29th, 520 B.C. So last week was kind of an anniversary of the first sermon of Haggai. Don't ask me that to, to run the numbers and how many years that was. But, but last week was the actual anniversary. So last time what we saw was this amazing sermon that Haggai the prophet preached. And, and you know, we don't know this for a fact, but in all likelihood Haggai was an older man. And he, he might have likely been part of the group that was carried into exile and then came back from exile. And next week or the next time we'll see some reasons why that's a possibility because he, he knew what the old temple looked like, or he seems to. But So he's probably an older man and he preaches a sermon and he addresses it to the nation, to the people, and basically describes them as a people who are missing the heart of God. They are missing something that God has for them in laying, letting the temple just lay there for 16 years. And, and so he, he, he speaks to them about it, and he explains to them what's happening in their hearts. He just sort of exposes their hearts. He says, you guys have gotten together, and I'm paraphrasing most of chapter 1, the first 11 verses, but you guys have gotten together, he says, and you've used your, your collective reason to reach a conclusion that it's absolutely okay not to do what God wants you to do. And this is a case where democracy fails to capture the heart of God. You know, we just had a business session. When we vote, uh, we may call that a democratic process, but it's a democratic process that's supposed to be driven by the Spirit of God. Where each individual Christian makes an effort to understand what would please the Lord and then votes on that basis. And so our forefathers adopted this approach to decision-making that if we can hear the body, we will hear something of the heart of God. This is a case where that failed. The people were saying to each other, it's not time. It's just not time to rebuild the house of the Lord. And the prophet confronted them with that statement. They said, you're saying it's not time to build the house of the Lord, but is it time for you to build your own house? Is it time for you to take care of your own business? Is it time for you to have these richly paneled homes and, and, and have this wealth and have all these different things going on? Is it time for that? 
while the house of God is in ruins? I mean, that's what he preaches. And so their collective reason is getting them into trouble. And so there's a selfish motivation there at work as well. So they're, they're described as a people who almost miss God. And then there are people awakened by God. They, God tells them, shows them how he is, he is being their adversary. He is allowing remedial judgment to come into their daily experience as individuals in order to get their attention. What do I mean by that? He says, you, you plant crops, but you don't harvest anything. You put money in your money bags, and it's like there's a hole in the bottom of it, and it just keeps going out. Have you ever had that experience at home? Well, I have. And he says, you're doing all these things, work, 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 to try to advance yourself, and you're trying to make excuses and say, you know, when we get to a certain place, when I get to a certain place in my family, a certain place in my home, then I'll focus on what God wants. But God is saying you're never going to get there because your priorities are wrong. And so he says to the people of God, he said, look, do you realize what's happening to you? Do you realize that you're taking three steps forward and two steps back? Do you realize that you're actually working against my hand? And so in a, in a, in a very summary kind of way, he allows the people of God to see their lives from his point of view. And dear one, when you see your life from his point of view, you can never see it the same way again. I have defined brokenness as seeing my life or my circumstances from God's point of view because it, my old point of view is broken. Sometimes when we see our lives clearly from his point of view, we weep. We're disturbed. It bothers us. Your heart breaks, and you realize that what God is showing you is true. What he's showing you about yourself is true. What he's showing you about your world is true. And that brokenness means your old way of seeing is broken, and you can never see it the same way again. And that's what's happening to them. And in that sense, there is a spiritual awakening in the people of God because they begin to see their world with the way he sees it. And so that's what we saw last time. They're waking up to God in those first 11 verses. Now, the key to what's happening here is the presence of God. And one of the things that we discover is, as we read the Old Testament and even as we read the New Testament is that everything rises and falls on the presence of God. As early as the book of Exodus, Exodus 33, you have a circumstance where the people of Israel have been rebellious, they have fallen into idolatry, and God is ready to leave them, withdraw his presence. He's a promise-keeping God, so he says, I'll send my angel ahead of you, and I'll keep my promises, and you'll get to the promised land. I'll do my part, even though you have failed, he says. I'll do my part, but I'll not go with you. And to his credit, Moses just falls apart and he says if you don't go with us we're not going anywhere we're not going anywhere we must have you with us I wonder how different Sunday morning would be in a Sunday school class or in a worship service or anything that we do as a church if we said God I cannot do this thing unless you go with me.
I fear that we have tried to do the work of God with the power, the natural power of the human self. And we wonder why we're not advancing. We wonder why we're not going forward, either as individuals in my personal growth or collectively as a church in North America. God never intended that you and I grow the church in our own strength. God never intended that you live the Christian life in your own flesh. In Galatians, Paul actually says, having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? You can't do anything apart from the Spirit of God. And so we see, we see a great illustration of this in Haggai because they are not paying attention to the Lord. They are not paying attention to his priorities, and they go 16 years and, and were they immoral? I don't know. Were they unfaithful? No. These were, the, these were the hardcore people. These were the people that some of them had never grown up in Israel, and they came back from exile to a place they had never lived. These are the people who were most dedicated. These were the people who had the greatest zeal for God. And nothing changed until God came. And when God comes, everything changes. Now, to that end, I've shared this verse with you before, but I, I want to put it up on the screen. Acts 3.19. This is a verse that appears in a sermon that Peter is preaching. And by the way, Peter is preaching. This is his second sermon. He is preaching, and just a few weeks earlier, he was hiding, scared to death. But in Acts chapter 3, he's preaching out loud where everybody can hear him. They've healed a lame man on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem. And he's preaching this sermon. And in the midst of it, in Acts 3.19, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Okay, now that's, that's standard gospel preaching, isn't it? Repent and be converted so your sins can be blotted out. I want to be saved. If I'm going to be saved, I want my sins carried away. And that's the heart of the gospel is that my sins are forgiven. But that's not the end of the gospel. And he goes on. He says, repent, therefore, be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that you can go to heaven. Is that what it says? No, apparently there's much more to being saved than going to heaven. Look at what he says. So that times of refreshing, times of refreshing, Notice it's plural, times, not one time, not just two times, many times. Times of refreshing may come from where? The presence of the Lord. It is your birthright as a Christian to have fellowship and communion with God, to have intimacy with him. And you know what? That's what he wants from you. What's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He wants to have intimacy and fellowship and communion with you. Jesus says, abide in me, stay with me, be with me. And so that's what Peter's teaching here, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you imagine then that the presence of God is important to the individual believer? Can you imagine that the presence of God is important to your life as a Christian? That the Holy Spirit who lives inside you is not just there to help you in bad days, but he is there to be your connection to your heavenly Father and to convey to you a sense of the presence of God. Now, there's a difference between, and this is the next statement I want you to see, there's a difference between knowing that God is everywhere, which is an idea, and knowing that God is here, which is an experience. Two different things. Theologically, the big word is omnipresence. Omni means all presence 
means presence. And so when we say that God is omnipresence, we're saying that he is everywhere. Really what we're saying is that he's big. He is so big that there's no point in the universe where you can go where he is not already. He's just already there. He's that big. Omnipresence. Now, I can know that with my head. I can walk in here and know with my head that God is everywhere I go, that God is everywhere in the universe. But there's a difference between knowing that God is here with my head and knowing that God is here with my heart. And by the way, that's equally true in your time alone with God. There's a way of approaching that time alone where you just read the scripture and pray dutifully and then go on about your day. I want to suggest to you tonight, dear one, that God wants so much more. He wants so much more. He wants to have fellowship with you. And he wants you to meet with him. He wants you through his scripture to come face to face with him. Your face, Lord, I will seek. That was David's cry throughout the psalm, Psalm 27, countless places. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Your face, Lord, your face, Lord, I will seek. He wants the presence of God. And so when we use the word revival, when I use the word revival, what I'm describing is what happens to the people of God in the presence of God. When God manifests his presence, makes his presence known to us in a way that is sensible and real, the effects of his presence on the human mind, the human heart, the human body, those effects that come when he manifests his presence are, are what we call revival. I have studied revival for 30 years. I'm a student of revival. I'm not an expert of revival, but I could talk to you at length about the history of revival. I could. And when I first started, I kept struggling. What is this? What is this? How do I explain in every single instance of historic revival and in the scripture, how do I explain what I'm observing? People falling to the ground, people, people whose lives are being radically changed, who are already church members, who are already Christians. How do I explain these radical transformations? How do I explain this overflow in the church where they suddenly go outside the walls of the church and begin living a different kind of life in the community? What is the common denominator? The presence of God. People who encounter the presence of God are changed. They walk differently. They talk differently. And it's wonderful. And it's your birthright. Times are refreshing from the presence of the Lord. You don't have to wait for a whole church to experience revival for you to experience revival in your own life because it's simply what happens when you seek the presence of God. So what are some ways that God changes us in his presence? Well, Haggai is going to help us on this. I have four that I want to share with you. Uh, four things. What are some ways God changes us in his presence? I'm just going to make four observations, and, um, and then we'll, we'll finish, and we'll just see where the Lord takes us. What are some ways God changes us in his presence? This is not a comprehensive list. I've sat down and made longer lists, but I'm confining our, us tonight to the things that Haggai um, shows us. So first of all, one of the ways God changes us in his presence, number one, the presence of God redirects actions. Redirects actions, the way we live. And in verse 12 it says, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. They obeyed the voice of the Lord. By the way, did you notice when I read the scripture 
In verse 12, it says, they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. Um, and the words of Haggai the prophet is the Lord, their God had sent him, their God. And at the end of verse 14, it says, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. You see, before verse 12, in the first 11 verses, their God never appears. He's not their God. But everything has changed. And now he's their God. They have experienced him in a new way, and he is theirs. They, they own this relationship. So he redirects their actions. There happens to be inside the individual that encounters the presence of God a deep desire to do his will. It says that they obeyed him. They had not been obeying him. But when they experienced his presence, obedience was one of the markers that they had experienced the presence of God. They wanted to do what pleased God. Uh, we see something very similar in Isaiah 6 when he has a vision of the Lord and it results in him ultimately saying, here am I, send me. And, and so that desire to, to do something for God, to serve God, is directly related to his experience of God. The two go together. So many times we, we say, well, what we need is a vision for God. We need a mission for God. We need a vision for God. There's no such thing as a vision for God until you have a vision of God. And you experience him. And then there's this deep desire to do his will. Let me give you an example. You can just jot down the reference. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just read it to you and you'll get the gist of it. Luke chapter 3, verses 8 to 14. We have the story of John the Baptist and his preaching. And I believe the presence of God was manifested through the preaching of John the Baptist. How do I know that? Listen to the text. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? You see, it becomes impossible for people to sit still in the presence of God. I read a quote, I think, last week during a sermon. Hudson Taylor was talking about how he had made an effort to reach people, raise up missionaries in England who would go to China. And he, what he discovered about that is I could, I could cast vision, I could tell stories, I could try to raise money, I could do those things, and I might get a couple of people. But he said, if I could deepen the spiritual life of the congregation, put a fire in their heart, it would be impossible for them to sit still. And so he shifted his whole approach. And he began talking about trusting God and experiencing God and, and a relationship with God. And once we encounter him, he redirects our actions. Number two, another way that God changes us in his presence, when we experience his presence. The presence of God consumes attention. You know, we get distracted by so many things. But when God manifests his presence, he's all I can think about. I can't think about anything else. I don't want to think about anything else. I don't turn off the TV because I don't think you ought to watch TV. I'm not interested. I don't lay down all my other entertainments and pursuits because I think, well, those are sinful or something like that. I, it's not this legalistic thing. It's this, I don't want to do those things. I want to read about him. I want to spend time with him. I want to talk to him. It consumes attention. 
In verse 12, it says, the people feared the presence of the Lord. They revered him. They were in awe of him. We talked about this in here before, but when, when we fear something, it has a way of taking all of our attention, doesn't it? And rivet on one thing, the thing we fear. Have you ever been deathly afraid of something? It becomes all you can think about. Uh, the illustration I've used, that's uh, worth repeating because you may want to use this yourself sometime. This is, this is valuable. Um, Will, come here, my friend. Do you mind? Come here. You don't have to say anything. But I, may I use you as an illustration? This is a positive thing. This, this not be embarrassing or anything. Everybody say hi to Will. Okay. Let's say Will and I decide to go to the zoo in Little Rock. We drive a couple hours to the zoo in Little Rock, and we look at all the different pens where they had the animals locked up. Do you like the zoos? What? Memphis. Memphis. Oh, all right. Well, he likes the Memphis Zoo. All right. So, so we turn the car around and we drive to Memphis because <laughs> Will is difficult to please. <laughs> and so we go, we go to the zoo and we look at the different things. Uh, we look at where they keep the ostriches and the birds and the fish and the snakes and uh, where they keep all the lions and tigers. I used to say cat house, but well, we don't say that. We don't, <laughs> we don't say that. We go look at where they keep the lions and the the feline-type creatures and all that kind of stuff. But when we go in there and we look, at, we look at the lions and we've looked at the gorillas and the apes, every time I talk to Will, I say, Will, isn't this, isn't this impressive? Look at that creature. Look at that huge elephant. I look over at Will. He's not impressed. And Will, this is almost like, you know, just real life. You don't even have to play this character. <laughs> He's just not impressed in this creature. And then we go into where they have the big gorillas, and there they are, the big gorillas. And I say, isn't that amazing, Will? And Will just, <laughs> he, he's not interested at all in, in these creatures. And so we get up, and, and we go in there, and there's this massive lion, really old one, weighs several hundred pounds, and he's sitting there in this cage. And I say, Will, look at that lion. That is an amazing creature that God made. And at this point, I've had it up to here with Will. And so before he realizes what I'm, what I'm doing, I reach over and I open up the cage and I shove him inside and I shut the gate behind him. Now what does he think about the lion? Is he indifferent to that lion? Is he distracted thinking about what we're going to eat for lunch? Or is he, all of his attention is suddenly riveted on the lion? Because now the situation's become dangerous. This lion is not just on the other side of a, in a safe place, on the other side of a, of a gate. He is now face to face with the lion. He's watching the respiration rate of the lion. He's watching it lick its lips, wondering if he's going to be the next thing it eats and hoping maybe it's really full from supper. And, and all of his attention is riveted on that. And that's what fear does. And that's why the God says over and over in Scripture to fear not, fear not, fear not. There's only one thing we're supposed to fear. That's him. All of our attention is to be riveted on him. Thank you, Will. You can take your seat. Y'all give him a hand. <clears throat> that wasn't hard, was it, Will? Good job. And, um, and so the presence of God consumes attention. When he manifests himself and, and he becomes real to you and me, he's all I can think about. 
Number three, the presence of God captures affection. Captures affection. In verse 13, the Lord speaks. And by the way, this is another message. Um, In verse 15, it says that this message came on the 24th day of the sixth month. The first message came on the first day of the sixth month. So it's about three weeks between these two messages. These people were responding to the first message. They were fearing the presence of God. They had begun to obey, which means they were going and getting wood and hiring builders and experts or whatever they were going to do to rebuild the temple. So there was this three-week period, and the people were fearing God. And, And honestly, if I had neglected something that God wanted me to do for 16 years, I'd be wondering, can we get a follow-up message here? I mean, how does God feel about me? What does God think about me? What does God, are we out of the woods here? Are we on the right track? And so three weeks later, another word comes to Haggai, and it uses unique language here. It says, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, that's not used anywhere else, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. What a precious word from God. Guys, I'm not against you anymore. I am with you, says the Lord. I am with you. And so here are two messages, three weeks apart, and God, God speaks. Now, what, what does this point to? There's a new desire for him, and he was answering that desire. There was a new affection for him, a new responsiveness to him. And they needed to hear that God is with them, that God had not abandoned them, that God cared for them, that God loved them. And so there's this great affection, and so that's one of the things that happens In revival, historically, over and over again, you see this tremendous sense of the love of God. You see it in the songs that are written. You see it in the things that are written. You see it in the experiences that people have. The great song of the Welsh revival where 100,000 people got saved in 10 months, a little over 100 years ago. The song was, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. That was the, the theme song of that revival. Here is love, vast as the ocean. What was happening to them? They were experiencing the presence of God. And their hearts, their hearts were just full, full of affection for him. Love for God, experiencing his love. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, verse 17, is praying for these Christians in Ephesus. They're already Christians. He prays for them so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. He said, I'm praying for you people in Ephesus. He says, not that you would know God's love with your head, but that you would know God's love with your heart. D.L. Moody was the great evangelist of the 19th century. Preached on both sides of the Atlantic. Was one of the, he was the predecessor to what Billy Graham and others would become years later. He was in Chicago pastoring a church when the Chicago fire broke out in 1971 and, and people that he had preached to that night, he had not given an invitation, people he'd preached to that night, he was convinced had died and gone into a Christless eternity, gone to hell, disturbed him. At the same time, he'd had some people in his church that had been praying for him. And he was offended by it because they were praying that, they, that he would have an encounter with God. And it's like, I'm a preacher. What do you mean, have an encounter with God? And so after the fire, he's in New York City. He's on a, basically a fundraising trip trying to raise money to help rebuild the damage done by the Chicago fire. 
And in 1871, and looking back over the course of his life, he refers to what happened. And these, these are his words. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, presence of God. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand, to stop. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths. And yet hundreds were converted. The presence of God captures affection. And last of all, number four, this is just what Haggai points out to us. The presence of God renews the human spirit. Renews the human spirit. You are a spiritual being. You have a body, a soul, and a spirit. And your spirit was intended, created to have communion or fellowship with God. And so when God manifests his presence, your human spirit wakes up. And your human spirit is now in proximity to the spirit of God and can be what God intended it to be. Alive, alive in his presence. In verse 14, it says, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. The Lord, verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit. And so they had begun to obey. They had repented. They were beginning to do what God called them to do. But then God wasn't just doing something outside of them. It wasn't just about external obedience. God went inside of them and did something. And suddenly they found themselves with a, with a fresh energy, a fresh passion, a fresh capacity. Not only to know God, but to serve God. And a supernatural effectiveness followed that stirring up of the human spirit. Much what D.L. Moody described in that last example. I believe that essentially what occurs is that the salvation that we have when we trust Jesus is based on becoming one with Christ. In fact, Paul actually writes to the Corinthians. He says, do you not know that anyone that's joined to Christ has become one spirit with him? One spirit. And when we draw near to God, and he, as he promises, draws near to us, that union with God comes alive. And the heart of God becomes a pounding passion in our soul. And our human heart begins to beat with the heart of God. There's, in essence, a synchronization between the heart of God and the human heart. He came in to those people and he stirred up their spirit. (laughs) And it wasn't a chore anymore. It was a passion. It wasn't work. It It was a passion. It was a joy to work on the house of God and to do this thing that they had been called to do. Well, today... What is the heart of God? Well, we could read a lot of different things. We could read the Great Commission statements. Let me read one of them. My favorite is Mark 16, 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, literally to every creature. 
If I understand that correctly, that means that he intends that when Baptist Church take the gospel to every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl in Wynn, Arkansas. That is a command of God. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. Francis of Assisi, I like to tell people, read that verse, and he, he took it literally and included not only people, but also birds and rabbits and the animals. He preached to them too. Well, you can do that if you wish, but I, I think we need to at least start with the people and get the gospel to them. And I believe that as you and I draw near to him, and what has happened historically is as we draw near and he draws near to us, that what has happened historically, not only is there repentance, not only does our, do our actions change and we begin to do the things that please the Lord and our affections and our attention get, get riveted on him, but our heart begins to beat with his heart. And that's what you have always in revival is you have the people of God going out into the world as different people, passionate people, people like Jesus, loving people, and uh, without reservation and without fear, hitting the streets. So how do we respond to this? I believe there's a couple things that, that we can do. If I understand that this is the heart of God, I can, as, as, um, as an administrative, corporately-minded person, which I am, uh, I could just make a, a plan, a strategy, and we would just sit down and work out this strategy. But as a person who believes that God wants us to draw near to him, that's the other half of me. I feel like a spiritual schizophrenic sometimes. I uh, realize that what he wants from us is not just our ideas and our obedience. Really, he doesn't need those things. What he wants from us is our heart and our passion. And so if I'm going to be about the things of God, I need to do it his way. Drawing near to him and letting him draw near to me. What can I do? You know, I think one of the most valuable things you can do, if you're not already doing it, is to seek him with somebody else. To get a prayer partner, a prayer circle, group of guys praying together, a group of ladies praying together, and get, get some people together and say, hey, let's just pray for one another, but let's seek God together. Let's seek him, seek him together. We're going to seek God together, and we're going to seek, seek him, and we're going to seek others on behalf of him. We're going to pray for lost people. We're going to pray for people who have needs. And just get some people together to pray. I, I've never known revival to occur in a prayerless environment. God always calls some individuals to pray before this thing called revival happens. And so if you wanted to do a constructive step, not only set aside your own daily time to be alone with God and just cultivate communion with him and, and this love relationship, but also find two or three other people and just say, hey, let's pray together each week. Let's pray for each other. Let's seek God on behalf of ourselves, on behalf of our church, on behalf of our community. Let's seek him together and see what he does. It's a journey, but it's a marvelous journey.